May the 14th, 2017, lecture discussion number 283 on the book of Romans, which, as you know, is actually also at the same time simultaneously Genesis 2, 3, and 4, and mostly Romans 5. So 2, 3, and 4, Romans 5 is today's special Mother's Day lecture. We'll have to figure out how I do that. I haven't thought of it yet. But I know it has to be done. Okay, last Sunday, lecture 282, <laughs> that's math. That's why I get paid what I get. I mentioned in the post-pre-lecture, and that is, of course, the segment that is after the pre-lecture, but still not the lecture. That makes sense. I'm starting to, I'm starting to twist your mind. Anyway, I had a letter from Shannon and, Shannon and Ann, who referenced Glenn. All of them are from Texas. Uh, it was laying on the uh, podium last week because it was delivered to New Grace, and so I didn't get a chance to look at it carefully, but I knew that it was applicable to the fall of Adam just by perusing it quickly. So I knew <coughs> that it would be a good idea to address a couple of these questions today. I'll, actually, I'm going to try to do all of them. There's four, four questions, and I'm doing it under the assumption, excuse me again, <coughs> that the uh, questions are representative of the whole. In other words, if I get questions like this, if somebody takes the time to write to me a physical letter, put a stamp on it, uh, and send it, typically that means to me that, okay, this is a subject that I have glossed over. I need to back up and take it on a little bit better, more fully. And, um, and as an aside, don't worry unnecessarily, Sally. Hi, Sally. I have not forgotten your Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 question. That's coming soon though soon is a relative term. That's the hundred-year question. Do you know what I mean by that? In the millennium, you die at a hundred years if you're an unbeliever. And Sally wants to know why, which is an excellent question. And it also is a fall of Adam application, if you wish to think of it that way. In other words, they connect together. But for today in the post-pre-lecture, I will insert Shannon's and Glenn's questions at least I will begin them. Resolving them it would consume the entire lecture time for today, and I don't want to do that. And it would probably do that for a few weeks, uh, which has been known to happen, as you are all too well aware. Now, to be fair, Shannon's question number three is on the acceleration of the second law of thermodynamics. That's what where he wants to start. And I said the acceleration of the second law of thermodynamics. Or if you prefer, the original status or the original state of thermodynamics. Or if you don't like that, the created state of thermodynamics as opposed to the post-fall of atom state. And this also, uh, and this is thermodynamic state. This also applies to almost all of the atomic structures. My first question that I got from a professor in college with regards to electrical physics was, did we have electricity prior to the fall of Adam? Because he saw it as an unstable state. Did we have lightning? Did we have fire? Did we have nuclear instability? Could we create nuclear instability? So, in other words, could I move the outside electron? In those days, they had decided that electron was a particle. Now, that's up to subjection now. But the point was, is to provide some kind of energy that would eliminate that electron in the outer valence bonding of a molecule, or an atom in this case, and move it to another missing area, or combine it in other, to get electronic or electrical flow. I didn't explain that very well. Don't worry about it. The point of it is, is I have to destabilize that atom in order to get electrical systems. And I use various forces to do that, mostly ma magnetic. But this is the question that Shannon is asking. What was the original state of the second law of thermodynamics? Was there even a second law of thermodynamics prior to the fall of Adam? What is the second law of thermodynamics? And you might not have thought about this at all in the, for a brief moment while groaning about the topic. Just now, you, you would say to yourself, 
what is this got to do with Genesis 2, 3, and 4? Well, it does. It has a lot to do with it. That's why I keep uh, going back to it. That's why I'm answering the question today. The second law of thermodynamics is the seemingly relentless, unstoppable uh, progression to disorder. It's called the law of disorder. It's low entropy to high entropy. Low entropy is complexity. High entropy is scrambledness, for lack of a better term. It is total disorder. And that is the discussion that is raised in Genesis 2, 3, 4, and that is Shannon's question. The fall of Adam. We had all these changes. Thermodynamics, just to give you an idea what we're talking about here. I know you guys know, but again, be patient for the people on the are in the vast internet audience. Okay, that's what we're talking about: is heat power, thermodynamics, heat power. That which is ordered becoming disordered. And the greatest example in the Bible of order becoming disordered is where? The body returning to dust. So thermodynamics is a discussion on death. Death comes at Genesis 2, 3, and 4. That is why they're asking me these kinds of questions. Ultimately, resurrection is a reversal of high entropy. If I take your body and put it into dust, you went from a low entropy status to a high entropy status. And if I restore you to your low entropy status, that's going to take a great deal of power. Taking that which is in disarray, that is decomposed, and restoring it to its complexity requires tremendous amounts of energy as well as intelligence. And obviously, that interjection of energy, power to accomplish this has to be done in a purposeful manner. By that, I mean it has to be done correctly. And Shannon's question is, if I can be allowed to interpret it, let me say this again. I have to interpret Shannon's questions with apologies to him if I am incorrectly doing so. Shannon's question was, uh, let me phrase it this way. Was there a restrictive force on the second law of thermodynamics before the curse? We know now. There, it's inviolable. The, the lesson that you learn with regard to Second law of thermodynamics are the law of disorder or the law of decay is that you can't stop it. If you have any theory that is in conflict with, with the second law of thermodynamics, which I'll start saying is 2LT just to stop from having to say it over and over again. If you have anything, any theorem that is in conflict with it, your theorem is wrong. Right off the bat, evolution is in opposition. They'll say no because of the heat energy from the sun. And I've got all of that. It's an interjection of energy. But most people look at it and go, how do I go from simple to complex? When the law says I go from complex to simple. But back to Shannon's question. Was there order to disorder or a decaying process prior to the fall of Adam? Was there some kind of decaying process in the pre-fall state? And if so, what level was it at and what was it like? And obviously Adam ate things. He ate vegetation. So did the animals. The animals in Adam ate, which means they processed organic materials. The fruits, the vegetables are crushed. Watch yourself eat sometimes. It's fantastic what you look like have movies of us eat, eating. It's very attractive. But we crush the fruits and the vegetables of the food that we're eating. We chemically deconstruct them inside our systems, stomach system, stomach acids. I'm not a doctor. I pretend to be one. The nutrients are extracted, minerals reformulated. That has a thermodynamic element to it. Do you see that? It is taking something like an, uh, an apple 
and turning it into a different form that is far less complex. And um, so there is some level of thermodynamics prior to the fall. It has to be. How much of it was there? If a tree fell to the, I'm sorry, not a tree, if a leaf fell to the ground and, and laid there for a while, what would happen to it pre-fall? Would it decompose? So ask yourself, how much thermodynamic uh, characteristic was in the pre-fall state? And then we'll keep going now, won't we? As you know, I've been asking quite a bit lately, uh, why this eating is so predominant in Genesis 2, 3, and 4? Eat, 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 eat. You're going to eat in sorrow. You ate the fruit. You can eat anywhere you want. Eat, eat, eat. Why eating? And, and there's a dependency. I understand that. I've said it for years. Eating makes us dependent on food. Food is from God. We have a dependency on breathing. Try not eating and try not breathing. See how long you last. We have to have water. We have to rest. Uh, I can make the case for light. And all of those are connected to our dependency. We can't survive without these particular uh, components, if you will, or particular processes. Are these kinds of energies or systems that are designed? And Christ, of course, calls himself the bread of life. He calls himself the breath of life. He calls himself the living water, the great Sabbath rest, and the light of life. So he identifies himself as that is whom is giving us these things to make us function. He's providing all the energy. Anyway, begin to consider the law of decay, the law of disorder, the second law of thermodynamics, asking primarily what was its pre-fall function besides eating? Is there any? What characteristics did it have? And, and has it been affected by the curse? And if so, how so? Or if you want to ask it this way, what specifically has caused the second law of thermodynamics to be what it is now? Or has it always been this way? Is a second law of thermodynamics something going from order to disorder consistent with, reconciled with God's definition of his creation? Which is what? Good. Can I get this inside of this somewhere? Or is the second law of thermodynamics totally a curse event? So what caused the second law of thermodynamics? And I would tell you to go look at Revelation 21:23. If you reduce the energy to a system, you're going to increase the rate of disorder. So Christ calls himself the light of life. He is the light energy. That is the basic foundational energy. If he removes himself, if God steps back, complex will go to simple. Why does God do that? If energy is withdrawn from a closed system, entropy increases. Entropy also intensifies as heat rises. Again, when we go to Revelation 21:23, what do we find out about light, about energy? Do we have a sun there? Do we have a moon there? No, we don't. In the restored state, who is the source of energy? It's Christ himself, the light of light. So consider all those factors. Now, question number one from Shannon. That's just, I'm just putting this question up there today. I don't have time to deal with it. I gave you enough information that most of you have already solved it. So that's wonderful, and I'm moving on. Now, question number one. That was question number three, I believe. Notice I'm answering the third question first, and now the first question second. Does that sound familiar? Because that's what Christ does in Matthew 24, 3 with the three questions. I'm not trying to replicate him. I just want to do what I wanted to do, but I saw an opportunity to throw in Matthew 24, 3. Shannon's question number one is effectively comparing the Gethsemane cup of Christ and the poison of Adam. He's putting them side by side, which is Adam's typology. And Christ demonstrates Jesus God. That's who he is. There is no hyphen in Acts 2. He is called Jesus God. Shows us his agony, his sorrow, and his weeping at Gethsemane. So what's the obvious question now? Shannon's question. If Jesus Christ 
First, let's go back. Gethsemane cup, poison of Adam. Jesus in Gethsemane, God in Gethsemane, agony, sorrow, weeping. What's the obvious question about Adam? If he's a type of Christ, then we've got to have the same thing, right? Where is Adam's agony, Adam's sorrow, and Adam's weeping? And yes, I know there's a large contingent of commentators that insist that Adam is stupid and selfish, and God therefore made the first federal head of all humanity an idiot. That's the common view. I got a letter from Jennifer from Arizona uh, who ran into this and said, well, wait a minute, he's a type of Christ. Hi, Jennifer. He's a type of Christ. They don't care. He's stupid, he's evil, he's an idiot, and that's how God made him in the beginning. And we hate him. Uh, that, I run into it all the time. Why do people want Adam to be the stupidest man ever created? They do. Ask him. I see this part where he's a type of Christ, Romans 5.14, that he is not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. Adam is a type of Christ and he did not sin in unbelief. There's a difference. He wasn't deceived. Adam is not deceived. Now, make that fit together, whatever view you have. I can't say it enough. He's the type of Christ, and he's not deceived. Anyway, in light of Romans 5.14, the definitive, that's definitive, that's the Holy Spirit, that's God himself writing it in his word, he declared Adam's typology. Not the contrast. The contrast exists. I'll grant that. I'll concede it. But everyone wants to look at the contrast. They never look at the typology. Don't ignore it. It's stated by God. It's not to be discarded. So we've got to now, therefore, we should, I think, compare Christ's cup to Adam's fruit. That's my opinion. I'll defend it to the end. So, did Adam weep for himself? Did Christ weep for himself? Careful, heretic. Did Adam weep for himself or did he weep for the woman that God gave him? Why did God give Adam the woman? Hey, the mother of his children? How about that? We're going strong here today. Why did Adam weep for the mother of his children? Fantastic. I could quit right here. We go right to the buffet. Why did God give him the woman? It says not good. Why isn't it good? Most people have the position that Adam is, a, is an idiot. Right? They do. And so what is the number one reason they gave, they say God gave Adam the woman? Because he is lonely. What does the Bible say? Helper. This is what everybody likes. This is what the Bible... What's the difference between loneliness and, and helper? What did he need help with? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, I told you a couple weeks ago that Ephesians 5, 25 through 32 is about Adam and Eve. It even says it is. It says right there, it quotes Genesis as it applies to Adam and Eve. It quotes Adam in Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Don't have time to read it, but that's what it's about. And Ephesians 5 is about the man, the husband, the, the bridegroom. It's also about Christ as well, of course protecting, cherishing, and sacrificing himself for the bride. So, Adam is given a bride so that he will cherish, protect, and sacrifice himself for her. He says to God, you gave me this woman, and you gave her to me, and my job was to protect her. And my job is to sacrifice myself for her, and my job is to cherish her above myself. I'm supposed to love her more than I love myself. That's what he says. In case you think he was pointing to her, saying, you gave her to me because it's your fault. Which is not what he says. You gave her to me. I had 
the responsibility and I have failed. That's what he's saying there. In my view, people don't like it because they want uh, Adam to be, I, I, I can't come up with an appropriate name that I won't get. They want him to be a fool. Did you have a question? That's correct. We're seeing we're seeing our society completely deconstruct, aren't we? Good grief! Uh, I'm sure every generation is worse than the other generations. Oh, look! But having said that, uh, the acceleration rate is incredible. Just go back and compare Bonanza to whatever you want. Marshall Dillon to who? Fast and Furious 36 or whatever it is out there. I mean, just look at the difference between how men were portrayed and thought of after World War II, that great generation, and look at the generation we have now that weeps in their campus safe spaces. And those are the men. I mean, it's a mess. It can't get any worse. Yes, it can. Yes, it will. That's the law, Chronister's Laws. Things have to get worse before they get worse. Okay, where was I? I should compare Adam's eating in sorrow with Christ's sorrow with the cup of Gethsemane. For whom did Christ weep? Never for himself, heretics. Christ weeps for Jerusalem. He says that. Why? Why does he weep for Jerusalem? Because they are temporarily lost? No. Jesus Christ is the creator of time. He does not... Oh, there's a relationship between 2LT and time, or the arrow of time. So, understand that Christ is the creator of time. He does not weep for those who suffer only the first death. He knows it, doesn't he? If he's weeping for Fred and he sees Fred's having a bad day, he can look here and see Fred's resurrected and saved. Same as Lazarus. He sees it simultaneously because he controls time. He doesn't just create it, he controls it. It's astonishing what, he, what God can do. So he doesn't weep for those who suffer only the first death and are, are going to be resurrected by him to eternal life. That means what's left. What could he be weeping for? Whom, for whom is he weeping? He's weeping for those in the lake of fire, the second death, Revelation 20:14. Therefore, where in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 does the type of Christ, the first Adam, confront the second death? or the prospect of the second death. And I'm now combining Glenn. Glenn's question number two. I didn't, I didn't bring it with me. I, wish, I should have probably read all the questions, but that would have taken a while. I'm trying to speed ahead, but I forgot it anyway. I'm now combining Glenn's question number two here. Glenn asked about spiritual and physical death and how these relate to the tree of life and the tree of surely die the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from where you eat, you will surely die. I just changed it to Shirley. So please don't call me Shirley. One person laughed at that joke. I try it a lot. I take it when I get it. The audience is constantly changing out there, and so, you know, I don't have, I have a limited reservoir of humor. And it's getting more and more limited every week. So let's take on Gwen's question. Let's rephrase it a little bit. Why did God end access to the tree of life? Because he did. And then, why is the tree of life in proximity to the tree of death? Or surely die. Obviously, the eating of the tree of surely die results in death by decay. Doesn't it? We see that in ourselves. That's what happens. You eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You surely die, tree. You will be affected by death by decay. The mortogenic factor. The question I've always asked is why death by decay? Why not immediate death? Eat from the tree. Down you go. That's not what he did. 
It's death by process. Slow process. In their case, extraordinarily slow process. We have, we have a rapid death in comparison. I will look worse next week than I look today. Just how it is. I play, as you know, on this old man softball team. The first thing we do, we don't see each other all summer or all winter. We see each other in the summer and we're all aghast at what happened to us. And everyone looks at everyone like, oh my, what happened to you? Who is this ghoul that has taken your place? It is just really a sad thing. Uh, And we all look the same now. He can't tell us apart. Everybody has the same expressions. We all move the same. It's really bad. (laughs) But someday, energy is going to interject, right? And the simple will become complex again. It will be a glorious day. Why did God end access to the tree of life? Or why is the tree of life in proximity to the tree of surely die? Obviously, the eating of the tree of surely die results in death by decay. Why not immediate physical death? Why this interposition of time? Why did God put time into this process? To repeat, the eating of the tree of surely die causes physical death. How many times, while in a state of physical death, could Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of surely die? Do you understand that? Anybody awake? Are we still awake? Here we go. Let's try it again. I have the tree of surely die. Adam and Eve are dying. They're in a decayed state. They're in a death state. Can they eat from the tree? Did God protect the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Can they go to it and eat more of it? Can we eat from it every day? Is it going to change anything? It's not. They're already dead. The process won't be sped up. They're just going to be in the same process in all likelihood. What would happen to you or me if the tree of surely die was just, boom, put right over here and we all ran over and ate from it? What would happen to us? Anything? Okay, good. Good for you. My point is, is the tree of life. Eating from the tree of life when one is in a life state, if you're already in a life state, eating from the tree of life does what to your life state? No effect. You see that? And eating from the tree of death while in a death condition also demonstrates no effects. So, why did God protect the tree of life from mankind when mankind is in a death state? Because that's what he did. He doesn't have to protect... Instantly, instantly cured by the steroidal effects of Diet Coke, which we have proven now, PQQ... I wish I could pronounce that chemical, but as uh, that brilliant doctor chemist man from Australia pointed out last week, that this has more PQQ in it than lima beans, for goodness sake. So I am being healthy. You didn't think so until you should look it up, those of you who missed it. I'll keep reading it over and over again. I told my brother about it. He's going with it, isn't he? Did he go with it today? Yeah, you bet he did. That's just fantastic. I should, good grief, Coca-Cola, come with me here. I mean, I'm working this. I can help you guys. I'm certainly a better spokesman than Michael Jackson is for Pepsi. Come on. Okay, I won't do that. I did it, though, didn't I? Ooh, here comes the mail. Why did God protect the tree of life from mankind in a death state? Why eating of of the tree of life while in a death state, or I'm sorry, would eating of the tree of life while in a death state change the death state? Because he doesn't have to protect the tree of life when you're living. He just has to protect the tree of life when you're dead or dying, right? So obviously, eating of the tree of life when in a death state changes the death state, doesn't it? How does it do it? Not how so much. What, what does it do? How so exactly? 
Keep in mind, God intervened here. Jump up and down. He intervened. He protects his flaming sword, Shekinah glory, cherubim. He protects it because he has to stop the possibility of someone in a death state going to the tree of life. Why? The answer or the question is why? He eliminated the possibility. Again, he intervened. Whenever God intervenes, start thinking to yourself, why does he intervene at the Tower of Babel? Why does he intervene at Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does he intervene at the Tree of Life? He has reasons. If you prefer, ask it this way. What is the foremost purpose of the Tree of Life? You've already got life. Why do I even need a Tree of Life? What's the purpose of putting a Tree of Life in the garden in the first place? I've asked these questions over the years, hundreds of times. But again, when I get these kinds of questions... I think it's appropriate to continue with this. How long could someone live physically in a fallen condition if she or he had availability to the tree of life? How long? I got somebody say forever. If God left the tree of life there unprotected, who would be eating from it? What percentage of the human population in a death state would be eating from the tree of life? The tree of life comes back, doesn't it? It's interesting to see what happens. We'll discuss that next week. He has to protect the tree of life. What's going to result if someone from a death state eats from the tree of life? Shannon also asked about the separation of Christ from God. That's a Psalm 22 question. Uh, let me just get to that really fast by saying... The question was this, did Christ in any way separate himself? And, and Shannon asked the question as carefully and as without venturing into a weak Christ position at all. So to give him great credit for that, and I was quite impressed. But he asked, was there any kind of separation at all between Christ and the other two members, or persons would be better, the other two persons of the triune Godhead? I answered the question with the word what? Triune. Let me put it another way. Can infinity separate from infinity? Can omnipresence separate from omnipresence? So, that can't have happened. Let's try some of the, the very last ones. Just for now, what causes the second death? What is the, what is the root cause that we know the lake of fire is the destination, but what is the cause of that destination? And um, you've heard me say unbelief. Everything stems from unbelief. But unbelief in what? Specifically. Question number four uh, of their four questions. Wow, am I going long. Is the bill the cow question, uh, which Bill the cow have brought up many times, and we have talked about it many times, uh, which is how much of our mental properties, our thoughts, our emotions, our prayers, our memories, our totality of spiritual information, how much of your mental properties, not your physical properties, set those aside because they are manifestations of your mental properties, how much of our mental properties are sinful? Let's just take your prayers. Ada Ruth Abershon, I wish I could find it. Bill found it somewhere, and I need to get it someday to read it to you. She, I believe it was her, I hope it was, she said, all my prayers are ungodly, selfish junk. I'll pray anyway. What a terrific understanding of her human condition. One of the most, if not, I think, I'll stop. The most brilliant woman theologian that I have ever come across. And, 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 and then, frankly, one of the top theologians of all time, period. What an incredible woman that was. So what percentage of our mental processes are sinful? What do you think? I'll give you a couple of choices. We can start with 99%. Go up from there. Those of you who protest, uh, uh, I'm <laughs> make a list of your good thoughts. As soon as you do, you've profaned them, right? 
So you can't even tell me if you have any good thoughts, can you? So you can't even refute that I say you have none because you can't tell me you have good, any because if you do, they're bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm able to do this because of the steroidal effect of Diet Coke. It, and the question becomes, if God removes the sin, what's left of us? What's left of our personhood, our self-awareness? The personhood and self-awareness are not the same. Are you aware of that? Ha, that's a little play on words. No one laughed. To help you laugh, it's not the same. I can give you an example. Amnesia. Do you have amnesia? Most husbands do on Mother's Day. Did it again. Special Mother's Day sermon. Do you have amnesia? If you do, where's your self-awareness? Do you have self-awareness without, without memory? You do. Self-awareness, memory, not necessarily the same. And again, I touched on this recently. This was a visionary philosopher's question it's somewhere on the Internet. Free will in heaven is what this is. We're recognizing again that the audience, both physically present and digitally present, are intermittent. It, uh, I need to probably go over it again. Will God erase our memories or forgive our memories? And what is the difference? The fundamental principle, that's why we cover things like Bell's theorem, it's a part of this, is information. The fundamental principle of quantum physics is that information is not destructible. In other words, cannot be destroyed. They want to know why can't you destroy Information. You cannot. Why does God not allow the destruction of any information? We're finding out that's true. We're walking in his footsteps, if you will. How does the forgiveness of sin process affect those whose sins are forgiven? In other words, when your sins are forgiven, that process of forgiving your sins, how are you affected by that? Removing the destruction of information from the equation. Let's do that for a second. Remember, existence and free will are not severable. You can't, you can't remove free will from existence. What do I mean by that? Again, how are we affected by our sins being forgiven? Not destroyed, because it's not going to be, your sins are, your memories are going to be intact. Wilder Penfeld, you may not remember you, your memories. Does that make sense? Wilder Penfeld, back in the 70s, figured out that he could access your memories. Your memories are not what you think they are, either. That's why witnesses in crimes are not reliable. What you think is a memory isn't really a memory. And we can find out what the real memories are, because the real memories are in there. And they can get them out. They know where they're at. So you don't have a memory problem, you have a connectivity to the memory problem. The point of it is, is that they can't be destroyed. Where do they go? So taking the destruction of that information away, how are you affected, affected by the forgiveness of sin? How does it change how you think of your memories, in other words? Does it change how you think of your memories? I say it does. So how exactly? Will I have memories of sin? Will my remembering of sin be sin? You were admitted with that? Okay. That's the end of that. The post-pre-lecture part of the lecture, number 283, is now officially over, and we have eight minutes left. How about that? I'm going to go really fast. On we go to the bulls of Bashan, Psalm 22:12, the curse of Satan, the logic of Satan, the cunning of Satan, the Isaiah 14, 14, Satan's pursuit of being like the Most High God. Remember from last week, Satan said he would be like the Most High God and he had thought it through. And by figuring out how to be like the Most High God, his process of being like the Most High God ends with billions and billions of dead. So, killing people makes him like the Most High God. And I ask you to consider how that's possible or what his primary system or logic is, his structure, his anatomy. And those things, will uh, all of those things I just rattled off, uh, his cunningness, what it means to be cunning, the curse of Bashan, or the bulls of Bashan, his curse, all of that, 
That sends us to investigate why the Antichrist is called the beast, if you were here last week, and why cattle or the golden calf or the ashes of the red heifer or the fatted calf. All of those are symbols, if you remember, I erased it all already, didn't I? I don't have time to write it on. But they're symbols that God is giving us information, if you will, insight on why he does what he does. Remember that Satan is cursed more than cattle and more than beasts. So why are cattle and beasts cursed? And I asked last night, last week, what's the big deal about Satan being smarter than a cow? Of course he is. Why is he more cunning, more, more, what does that mean? It's like a revelation, isn't it? You are smarter than a goat. Clearly it is important. And it is not the way we think. What is it about cattle? What is it about beasts? And I meant that. It was a compliment. All of you are smarter than a goat. Not that I have any experience with goats. Just winging it here. In case you were insulted. I'm leaving out the internet audience, of course. I'm not doing that. I don't know them. I could have a couple that are a little bit shaky. I just lost his listeners. Why does God say what he says? What does he mean when he says Satan is more cunning than a cow or a beast? Do you suppose that the ashes, or did you suppose that the ashes of a cow that's used as a cleansing provision for contact or defilement with death, did you think that was arbitrary? That's... Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. If you find a body in the field, all the cities had to get together. They went out there and they measured to see who was closest to that body. The one that's closest to the dead body of a human, usually a male, uh, especially identified as a male in this case mostly. And it's a picture of Christ. That's the city that had to bury it. And the way you kept yourself from being defiled by the dead body contact was you beheaded a red virgin cow that had not seen in a yoke and had, of course, never had any kind of, uh, of contact with a, with a bull. So why did he pick a cow as a cleansing provision for defilement with death? Is it arbitrary? Of course it's not. Why did God select the cow to be a cleansing agent when a dead body is found in the field? Of all the animals that God could have selected, he chooses the red heifer. We'll do what, deal with this next week. Or the red cow. And cattle and beasts, serpent, serpent Satan, right? Cattle and beasts, serpent Satan is more cunning than cattle and beasts. Because you have done this, God says, this cunning thing that you've done, you're more cursed than cattle and beasts. And on your belly, in the dust all the days of your life. How is it that he's more cursed? What is the curse for the cattle and the beast? Who are the cattle and the beast? If the serpent is Satan, who's the cattle, who's the beast? Hope that makes sense. And I'm, I'm repeating all of these components to emphasize their significance and their connectivity. They have a relationship. We should approach them in a matter that is investigative, assembling them all together as evidentiary indicators that lead to truth. That's the point. Think of yourself as a detective. You have many truths here. Cattle means something. Beasts mean something. God designed his word, his scripture, to be applicable through all times. You know what a cow is. So does the guy 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. All of us can say Satan is more cunning than, the, than cattle. We can figure out what a cattle is or what a beast is. We can see serpents, S-E-E. Not in Alaska, but we, can, we, can, we know what a snake is. No snakes in Alaska. You can leave your food out on the shelf and the ants won't get it in Alaska. Leave it anywhere. Just throw your food all over the floor. No ants. Try that in Hawaii where I went to college. Sorta went to college. Let's say sorta. That didn't work out so well for me. Misspent youth. Why are these three placed together in the order that is given? Serpents, cattle, beasts. Beast seems to be a general term. Is it a general term? When God said that, you are more cunning than the cattle and the beasts. What's the obvious question there? How many cattle were there? Come up with a number. How many beasts were there? 
let's get rid of a number. Were there a million cattle? Were there ten? You're more cunning than those ten cows over there. You're more cunning than those than that dog. Wolf in this case. How many beasts at the time of the fall of Adam, the sentencing of Satan? Now we should have read Genesis one twenty four through twenty seven, don't have time. But there's a wonderful delineation there. There's a list. And they're living souls. He identifies them. God calls them conscious beings. They have the breath of God in them. The living souls. There's cattle. There's creeping things. There's beasts. There's fish. There's fowl. And there's great whales there. So we get this wonderful list. Cattle. Once again identified. What's a cattle? What separates a beast from a cattle? Eventually that gets us to glean and un, I'm sorry, gets us to clean and unclean designations of Leviticus 11, doesn't it? Why is a cattle clean and a beast unclean? Why are some animals clean and others unclean? But for today, as it relates to Satan, Genesis 3.1, Genesis 3.14, Satan is, the serpent is more cursed than the cattle and more cursed than the beast, which forces us to search out and find cattle that are cursed. I go find all the cursed cattle. He's cursed more than the cattle, so find a cursed cattle. Find out who that is. Cursed beast? That's pretty easy, isn't it? The Antichrist is called a cursed beast. If you're looking for cursed cattle, you end up at the bulls of Bashan. Those are cursed cattle. First place you read about them is Genesis 14.5. Second place is Psalm 22.12. That's our first stops. If you're going to look up cursed beasts... You go to the Antichrist in Daniel 7. The beasts and the bulls are depicted as fierce, savage, violent, murderous, remarkable for their size. That's what the Bible says about them. The ones that are cursed. They have strength. It's amazing. That's especially applicable to the bulls of Bashan. They're monstrosities. So who are the bulls of Bashan? They were also the bulls of Bashan are referred to as the moving dead. Also the walking dead, in case you want to know where that show comes from. Zombies, right? Walking dead, bulls of Bashan. That's where it comes from. Why is it that the bulls of Bashan are doomed, cursed? What did they do? What they are, this gets back to why is Judas cursed? What did he do? He's cursed while he's still alive. Physically. Bulls of Bashan are cursed while they're still alive. Physically. Why? But Satan is cursed more than these. So who then qualifies as the bulls of Bashan? And who then are the beasts? Who are, are the accursed but are cursed less than Satan? Mull that over while I clean up a few things from last week. Back to Psalm 22. i got less than two minutes. Which is overwhelmingly applied to Christ on the cross. You know that. Everybody says Psalm 22 is about Christ on the cross. Even though the title of the psalm is the hind of the morning or the deer of the dawn. It doesn't say Christ anywhere. Some of your Bibles will say it's the, it is the, uh, the psalm of the cross. The, the title of it is not that. The psalm is the title, or the title of the psalm is the deer of the dawn or the hind of the morning. And let me ask this. If Jesus Christ is not fully God on the cross, where would you have him be God then? If he's not going to be God on the cross, where is he God ever? Obviously, that's a rhetorical element in that question. Jesus Christ is always omnipotent God. Certainly, he is omnipotent God on his cross. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God at all times. Does Psalm 22 describe the infinite, omnipotent God of creation? John 1, 3. Does it? Read it. Does not. Describes the hind of the morning, the last of the flock, the one that can't get away from the wolves or the lions, or the bulls of Bashan, that are torn to pieces. Who is described in Psalm 22? What relationship does the hind of the morning have with Adam? What? 
Let me rephrase the question a bit. The hind of the morning is being torn to pieces by the bulls of Bashan and the beasts. Psalm 22.12, Psalm 22.16. Like a lion. Again, let me repeat. Pierced hands and feet doesn't say that. What it really says is that the hands and feet are torn off like a lion tears the hands and feet off its prey. That's what it says. Does that apply to the omnipotent God of creation? Is he crying out for help? He's the omnipotent, infinite God of creation. Is he crying out for help? Who would help him? Himself. Psalm 22 has elements of Christology in it because Israel is a type of Christ. The firstborn in the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. There's a typological aspect. But you have to be careful going through Psalm 22 and don't apply things. Lions tears off the hands and feet of its prey. Dogs, wolves actually form a circle and encompass their victim. They do it now. They do it in Eagle River. Water buffalo likewise circle bulls, powerful animals, and they attack and destroy and trample their victims. Does this picture apply to Adam is what I'm asking. Just asking, does it? And if it does, where? Lastly, Jesus Christ, omnipotent. Who is surrounding Adam? Who would have sat, who would have surrounded Adam? Would it be the cattle and the beasts? When did they do it? Lastly, Jesus Christ, omnipotent, infinite God in the flesh. Matthew 10:28 through 29. Luke 12:4 through 5 says, do not fear those who can only cause the death of your body. Don't fear those that can only do the first death thing, physical death. Fear him, fear God, fear me, he says. I'm the one who sends the wicked to the lake of fire. Why does Christ say this? Why does he say it? Well, it is clearly a Genesis 3 Adam Eve reference because that's the first place a physical body dies. That's the first physical death, which brings another question. Why does Satan seek to cause physical death? Why does Satan murder? How does that make him like God? Because that's what he's doing. Murdering makes him like the Most High. Christ tells us, don't fear it. Don't fear the cunning that ends in physical death. Obviously, uh, we are going to fear death. We do, because of the mucus dingleberry sheep that we are. But it's more than that as it always is. God is reminding us the death of, of the death of Adam and the death of Eve. He says, when they come for you, remember the first deaths. And don't fear. Fear not. Don't fear these people that caused this. Fear me. I'm the one who curses above all things. He's referencing It's almost like a remember Lot's wife thing. When he says, don't fear the death of the body, he's saying to us, remember Adam and Eve. And there the obvious question. Adam was afraid, right? The last obvious question. Was he afraid of his own physical death? Probably not. What was he afraid of? Rise and be dismissed. 